0: Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from a cherry blossom filled Washington, D.C. is Lindsay Wardlaw. Lindsay is Director, Trade Advisory Service at Amelie Trade Compliance, uh, and obviously we're going to be talking about trade compliance. Uh, First, Lindsay, thank you for taking time out of your morning to talk to us today.
1: Adam, it is my pleasure to be joining you.
0: Mind to have you. This is a very hot topic, as you well know. I mean, and what's interesting to me is that trade compliance used to typically be its own silo. But with the growing risk of issues, it's increasingly a topic the corporate compliance team needs to stay on top of. Uh, As you know, it's not just about who you are selling to, but also about where you're sourcing from. Um, What are some of the key challenges in managing supplier issues when complying with U.S. laws and regulations?
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting because in my mind, trade compliance has four areas, and all of them have some supplier risks. So you've got sanctions, export controls, anti-boycott, and customs. And it's not just the customs space that has supplier risk. Uh, although I think I'd like to talk mostly about customs today, but you know, briefly, there's also risk with regard to sanctions. When you think about comprehensively sanctioned countries, um, you can't really import any items from those countries. With with regard to other countries that are not comprehensively sanctioned, like Venezuela, there are certain products that you can't import, like petroleum. And then you also have certain counterparties who might be sanctioned that you can't do business with either, so you can't use them as a supplier. There's also export controls, and this one can really be a doozy because you might not think that export controls would have any impact on who you choose as a supplier. That's not quite the case. So, you know, what you import. And what you incorporate into your product can affect where you can send it and the controls that will apply to it, one. But then two, there actually can be some instances where you're restricted from sending design work over to a supplier. So it's not who you pick as your supplier necessarily, but where your supplier is located can be an issue if you need to send them sensitive information to make your product. Um, but I know I know we really wanted to focus into a little bit more on customs. So one of the big issues in the United States right now is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And so the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, um, it kind of hooks in together with this pre-existing law, the Tariff Act of 1930. So the Tariff Act of 1930 says that you cannot import any item made with forced labor into United States. And then the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act actually says that there's a presumption. Anything made in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of China or by certain entities that have been identified by the US government as potentially creating or making items with forced labor, any items from that region or from those entities are presumed to be made with forced labor, and therefore the the tariff act keeps them out. So this presumption is rebuttable, but over about about 3,000 shipments have been stopped since June 2022 when the law came into effect. As far as most people in the trade bar are aware, Um, None of them have been released um, by virtue of of, um, rebutting this presumption that they were made with forced labor. Some items have been released instead because they were able to prove that they weren't made in the region or weren't made by one of the entities on this entity list, Um, but none were able to prove that they weren't made with forced labor at this point. So, you can see that that creates a really big challenge, right? A really big challenge um, for U.S. importers because the presumption applies to goods made in whole or in part. Uh, in the region or by one of these entities. So, it's not just that you have to go through all of your suppliers and say, do I have any who are in Xinjiang or any who are on this entity list? You actually have to dig deeper into your supply chain to try to figure out whether or not your suppliers suppliers are sourcing from or are conducting uh, transitional or substantial uh, elements of their work right, in Xinjiang. And that can be really hard to do. There's just not a lot of transparency out there.
0: That's tough. And and I think it's worth noting that, you know, we've talked about U.S. restrictions, but we're not alone. Europe has gotten very active in this area, and I understand there's more to come. What are the current requirements coming out of the EU?
1: So the EU hasn't yet adopted any forced labor standards, but in September of last year, it actually, um, the European Commission proposed forced labor standards that would be stricter than those of the United States. So these forced labor restrictions would actually say that For all regions that you might import from and for all domestic production, um, you cannot use forced labor. Uh, And then also you cannot export goods made with forced labor. You can see that's actually a significantly broader prohibition, and there's an expectation that this would probably be adopted and enter into force in 2025, 2026. So companies have a little bit of time to get ready, um, but it's going to be a really comprehensive restriction, so they should start getting ready now.
0: It sounds like it. Now, given all these requirements and to this point about getting ready, how can compliance teams start to get a handle on all of these
1: risks? Well, the first thing to do, and the most important thing to do, is to really understand your risk, right? And companies should already have been doing this to some degree, but it starts with understanding your products, um, the primary input inputs, sorry, into those products, the suppliers for the products, the customers for the products, and we're thinking broader, more broadly about our trade compliance program um their their agents, their channel partners. You have to know also um, you know, how those items are classified, where they are being made, where they're being sold to, um, by by and for whom, right? So it's it's every aspect of the of the transaction you need to understand. And the organization as a whole will have that information, but the trade team doesn't always have that information.
0: Given that they don't always have this information and crises are inevitable. You know, you're an advocate for having a crisis management task force to handle trade issues. Who should comprise the task force?
1: So every organization is a little bit different in terms of you know who who um, one like what they're making, what they're what they're buying, what they're selling, but then who they might need to have on this task force. So it should be tailored to what your needs are and to who really has authority in your organization. But I would start by saying. Uh, the trade compliance team obviously needs to be involved because they're the most fluent in these regulations. Um, then I would say almost every organization will need to include their sales and supply chain teams and their logistics team, right? That makes sense because import and export restrictions usually affect what you're bringing in, supply chain and procurement, what you're selling, sales, and the logistics team handles all of the kind of ins and outs of getting things to and from places. But there are some other people I would say that you should include that I think may be less obvious. So one is somebody from your communications team right? who's going to help you to explain to the rest of the company and to the rest of the world um, what you are doing in this regard whenever a new rule hits you. Um, somebody from your IT or your information uh, systems team should probably be on this task force because frequently, especially with regard to export controls, there are restrictions on who can access what data when the controls roll out. Same thing with sanctions. There may be restrictions about who can buy what you're, what you're selling from a distance, and so you might need to change how you're handling your e-commerce store. Um, it's really, I think, very important to have somebody there who knows how to work with your systems. Um, and then I think in some cases, you might need to involve the engineering team or like a product, project management team because they understand what you're making um, and may understand if those goods are affected by particular restrictions faster than the trade compliance team, which would have to interface with engineering anyway. Um, and somebody from HR, when you think about sanctions, because sanctions sometimes restrict who you can hire. So it's, it's kind of amazing how cross-organizational this could be, but the most important part is that the people who are on your team should be you know, subject matter experts with regard to their field, but also leaders, right, who can push down any any mandates that half force may come up with, or discuss them with people in authority to push the, the mandates down.
0: Very comprehensive, and truthfully, it's not surprising, given when a crisis hits, how many sort of tentacles there are to it. Is is there Mm -hmm. anything that should be done even before a crisis hits in addition to assembling a team?
1: Yeah, so kind of circling back to understanding your risk, there are a couple of things I would think are integral to that process. One is making sure that you have a restricted party screening program in place, either manual or automated. Automated will probably do a more comprehensive and better job, um, but manual, if you, if you need to stop stopgap and you just don't have something in place, that means looking at sanctioned party lists all over the world for the jurisdictions where you're operating and selling. Um, and then also um, classification, you should have a, an import and export classification strategy. And if your goods are not all classified right now, you should have a prioritization of the goods that you think are highest risk under the current scheme, or under what you you envision as potentially kind of future restrictions, and get those classified as fast as you can, because when a crisis hits, you want to already know the classification for your goods, so you can tell if they're covered right by a new rule. Um, I would also say that you should probably develop a transactional sales review process someplace in the normal sales re- routine where trade compliance gets to look and say yes or no, this high-risk transaction is concerning to me. Maybe not for all transactions, but for things that might be going to more sensitive but not really comprehensively sanctioned countries. And that way, if you already have that process in place, you can kind of re-adapt that process uh, for the new crisis, whatever it might be. Um, Likewise, I would say have a communications plan in place. I would have contractual provisions in place. Personally, I think every company should have um, force majeure clauses in place with its suppliers and with its customers, the ability to terminate or delay performance of payment, start or payment on the basis of a new trade restriction, or, and this is really critical, I think, in the event that an existing trade restriction becomes newly applicable to your counterparty. And when I say that, I mean something like, you're already dealing with one particular company, but now its management becomes sanctioned, right? Or now the company as a whole becomes sanctioned. Or now the country that it's operating in becomes sanctioned, or the good that you were contracting to sell them um, is now covered by export control restrictions that would prohibit you from selling that good. So maybe maybe you were already engaging in this transaction legally, but now you you still can't. Um, I think it's really important to be able to um, to pull out in that case with minimal consequence. Uh, and then the last thing I think that you should be doing is thinking about the kind of nexus of existing trade laws to your company. Um, and by that I mean, think about whether or not for for any operations you have around the world, the U.S. government has the ability to say you need to be following U.S. sanctions or you need to be following U.S. export controls. And the same thing with the major governments that you're dealing with all around the world. Because if you know if jurisdiction exists um, to all of your different operations and plants, then you have a pretty good sense of whether a new rule that affects maybe a new market still could apply or still could be covered by those new restrictions.
0: Well, and I think the bottom line from all of this is as complex as this issue is today, expect it to grow ever more complex. And uh, I I would say it certainly sounds like one of the biggest mistakes you can make is get a sense of complacency that you have it under control. Well, Lindsay, thank you for this uh, interesting conversation and somewhat chilling one. Uh, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Taub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.